0: part 2 chapter 4 of true stories from history and biography by nathaniel hawthorne this librivox recording is in the public domain accordingly the next evening grandfather resumed the history of his beloved chair master ezekiel cheever said he died in 1707 after having taught school about seventy years it would require a pretty good scholar in arithmetic to tell how many stripes he had inflicted and how many birch rods he had worn out during all that time in his fatherly tenderness for his pupils almost all the great men of that period and for many years back had been whipped into eminence by master cheever moreover he had written a latin ascendance which was used in schools MORE THAN HALF A CENTURY AFTER HIS DEATH, SO THAT THE GOOD OLD MAN, EVEN IN HIS GRAVE, WAS STILL THE CAUSE OF TROUBLE AND STRIPES TO IDLE SCHOOLBOYS. GRANDFATHER PROCEEDED TO SAY THAT WHEN MASTER CHEEVER DIED, HE BEQUEATHED THE CHAIR, to the most learned man that was educated at his school or that had ever been born in america this was the renowned cotton mather minister of the old north church in boston and author of the magnalia grandfather, which we sometimes see you reading, said Lawrence. Yes, Lawrence, replied Grandfather. The Magnalia is a strange pedantic history, in which true events and real personages move before the reader with the dreamy aspect which they wore in Cotton Mather's singular mine. This huge volume, however, was written and published before our chair came into his possession. But, as he was the author of more books than there are days in the year, we may conclude that he wrote a great deal while sitting in this chair i am tired of these schoolmasters and learned men said charlie i wish some stirring man that knew how to do something in the world like sir william phipps would sit in the chair such men seldom have leisure to sit quietly in a chair said grandfather WE MUST MAKE THE BEST OF SUCH PEOPLE AS WE HAVE. AS COTTON MATHER WAS A VERY DISTINGUISHED MAN, GRANDFATHER TOOK SOME PAINS TO GIVE THE CHILDREN A LIVELY CONCEPTION OF HIS CHARACTER. OVER THE DOOR OF HIS LIBRARY WERE PAINTED THESE WORDS, BE SHORT. AS A WARNING TO VISITORS, THAT THEY MUST NOT DO THE WORLD SO MUCH HARM AS NEEDLESSLY TO INTERRUPT THIS GREAT MAN'S WONDERFUL LABORS. ON ENTERING THE ROOM YOU WOULD PROBABLY BEHOLD IT CROWDED AND PILED AND HEAPED WITH BOOKS. THERE WERE HUGE, PONDEROUS FOLIOS AND QUARTOS and little duodecimos in English, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldaic, and all other languages that either originated at the confusion of Babel or have since come into use. All these books, no doubt, were tossed about in confusion, thus forming a visible emblem of the manner in which their contents were crowded into Cotton Mather's brain, and in the middle of the room stood a table on which, besides printed volumes, were strewn manuscript sermons, historical tracts, and political pamphlets, all written in such a queer, blind, cramped, fantastical hand that a writing-master would have gone raving mad at the sight of them. By this table stood grandfather's chair, which seemed already to have contracted an air of deep erudition, as if its cushion were stuffed with Latin, Greek, and hebrew and other hard matters in this chair from one year's end to another sat that prodigious bookworm cotton mather sometimes devouring a great book and sometimes scribbling one as big IN GRANDFATHER'S YOUNGER DAYS, THERE USED TO BE A WAX FIGURE OF HIM IN ONE OF THE BOSTON MUSEUMS, REPRESENTING A SOLEMN, DARK-VISAGED PERSON IN A MINISTER'S BLACK GOWN WITH A BLACK LETTER VOLUME BEFORE HIM. IT IS DIFFICULT, MY CHILDREN, OBSERVED GRANDFATHER. TO MAKE YOU UNDERSTAND SUCH A CHARACTER AS COTTON MATHERS, IN WHOM THERE WAS SO MUCH GOOD, YET SO MANY FAILINGS AND FRAILTIES. UNDOUBTEDLY HE WAS A pious MAN. OFTEN HE KEPT FASTS, AND ONCE FOR THREE WHOLE DAYS HE ALLOWED HIMSELF NOT A MORSEL OF FOOD, but spent the time in prayer and religious meditation many a livelong night did he watch and pray these fasts and vigils made him meagre and haggard and probably caused him to appear as if he hardly belonged to the world "'Was not the witchcraft delusion "'partly caused by Cotton Mather?' inquired Lawrence. "'He was the chief agent of the mischief,' answered Grandfather. "'But we will not suppose that he acted otherwise "'than conscientiously. "'He believed that there were evil spirits "'all about the world. "'Doubtless, he imagined that they were hidden IN THE CORNERS AND CREVICES OF HIS LIBRARY, AND THAT THEY PEEPED OUT FROM AMONG THE LEAVES OF MANY OF HIS BOOKS AS HE TURNED THEM OVER AT MIDNIGHT. HE SUPPOSED THAT THESE UNLOVELY DEMONS WERE EVERYWHERE, IN THE SUNSHINE AS WELL AS IN THE DARKNESS, AND THAT THEY WERE HIDDEN IN MEN'S HEARTS and stole into their most secret thoughts here grandfather was interrupted by little alice who hid her face in his lap and murmured a wish that he would not talk any more about cotton mather and the evil spirits grandfather kissed her and told her that angels were the only spirits whom she had anything to do with. He then spoke of the public affairs of the period. A new war between France and England had broken out in 1702, and had been raging ever since. In the course of it, New England suffered much injury from the French and Indians, who often came through the woods from Canada and assaulted the frontier towns. Villages were sometimes burnt, and the inhabitants slaughtered within a day's ride of Boston. The people of New England had a bitter hatred against the French, not only for the mischief which they did with their own hands, but because they incited the Indians to hostility. The New Englanders knew that they could never dwell in security until the provinces of France should be subdued and brought under the English government. They frequently, in time of war, undertook military expeditions AGAINST ACADIA AND CANADA, AND SOMETIMES BESIEGED THE FORTRESSES BY WHICH THOSE TERRITORIES WERE DEFENDED. BUT THE MOST EARNEST WISH OF THEIR HEARTS WAS TO TAKE QUEBEC AND SO GET POSSESSION OF THE WHOLE PROVINCE OF CANADA. SIR WILLIAM PHIPS HAD ONCE ATTEMPTED IT, BUT WITHOUT SUCCESS. Fleets and soldiers were often sent from England to assist the colonists in their warlike undertakings. In 1710, Fort Royal, a fortress of Acadia, was taken by the English. The next year, in the month of June, a fleet commanded by Admiral Sir Hovenden Walker, ARRIVED IN BOSTON HARBOR. ON BOARD OF THIS FLEET WAS THE ENGLISH GENERAL HILL, WITH SEVEN REGIMENTS OF SOLDIERS WHO HAD BEEN FIGHTING UNDER THE DUKE OF Marlborough IN FLANDERS. THE GOVERNMENT OF MASSACHUSETTS WAS CALLED UPON TO FIND PROVISIONS FOR THE ARMY AND FLEET and to raise more men to assist in taking canada what with recruiting and drilling of soldiers there was now nothing but warlike bustle in the streets of boston the drum and fife the rattle of arms and the shouts of boys were heard from morning till night in about a month the fleet set sail, carrying four regiments from New England and New York, besides the English soldiers. The whole army amounted to at least seven thousand men. They steered for the mouth of the River St. Lawrence. Cotton Mather prayed most fervently for their success, continued Grandfather, both in his pulpit. AND WHEN HE kneeled down in the solitude of his library, resting his face on our old chair. But Providence ordered the result otherwise. In a few weeks tidings were received that eight or nine of the vessels had been wrecked in the St. Lawrence and that above a thousand drowned soldiers had been washed ashore on the banks of that mighty river after this misfortune sir hovenden walker set sail for england and many pious people began to think it a sin even to wish for the conquest of canada "'I would never give it up so,' cried Charlie. "'Nor did they, as we shall see,' replied Grandfather. "'However, no more attempts were made during this war, "'which came to a close in 1713. "'The people of New England were probably glad of some repose, "'for their young men had been made soldiers,' till many of them were fit for nothing else, and those who remained at home had been heavily taxed to pay for the arms, ammunition, fortifications, and all the other endless expenses of a war. There was great need of the prayers of Cotton Mather and of all pious men, not only on account of the sufferings of the people, BUT BECAUSE OF THE OLD MORAL AND RELIGIOUS CHARACTER OF NEW ENGLAND, WAS IN DANGER OF BEING UTTERLY LOST. HOW GLORIOUS IT WOULD HAVE BEEN, REMARKED LAWRENCE, IF OUR FOREFATHERS COULD HAVE KEPT THE COUNTRY UNSPOTTED WITH BLOOD. Yes, said Grandfather, but there was a stern, warlike spirit in them from the beginning. They seemed never to have thought of questioning either the morality or piety of war. The next event which Grandfather spoke of was one that Cotton Mather, as well as most of the other inhabitants of New England heartily rejoiced at this was the accession of the elector of hanover to the throne of england in seventeen fourteen on the death of queen anne hitherto the people had been in continual dread that the male line of the stuarts who were descended from the beheaded king charles and the banished king james would be restored to the throne in that case as the stuart family were roman catholics it was supposed that they would attempt to establish their own religion throughout the british dominions but the elector of Hanover and all his race were Protestants, so that now the descendants of the old Puritans were relieved from many fears and disquietudes. The importance of this event, observed Grandfather, was a thousand times greater than that of a presidential election in our own days. If the people dislike their president, they may get rid of him in four years, whereas a dynasty of kings may wear the crown for an unlimited period. The German elector was proclaimed king from the balcony of the townhouse in Boston by the title of George I, while the trumpets sounded and the people cried, Amen. That night the town was illuminated, and Cotton Mather threw aside book and pen, and left grandfather's chair vacant, while he walked hither and thither to witness the rejoicings. End of Part 2 Chapter 4